on those headphones. It's time for Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine. Welcome to Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine, the podcast that explores all things kinky in a sexy and inclusive way. This show is intended for mature audiences aged 18 and up, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We believe in risk-aware consensual kink here on the show, so if you do try things mentioned on the show at home, know that neither the show nor the cast are responsible for any accidents, injuries, legal or property damages that may occur while getting your kink on. Welcome to Naughty Talk Season 1, Episode 7. I'm Sunny, she, her, and I am here with Panda Pet, she, they, it. How are you today, Panda? Dude, as usual, when we do these recordings, we are tired, but we are here because we always do them after work. I know. And like real talk, I always say like, I'm great. I'm so excited. And like today, I'm literally like dying of the flu or something similar. I've tested myself like 10 times. It's not COVID, but everybody in my house is sick and we are isolating, but the show must go on. And actually, (laughs) we're going to try to do two recorded segments today. So um, people are going to think that I'm like sick for weeks on end, but no. (laughs) In fact, uh, both I and Panda are very busy people. And so sometimes we record two at a time. So I'll just have this intermittent frog voice going on (laughs) as the season progresses. It's your phone sex voice. It's fine. I hope not. No, my my phone sex voice would be a little bit better than Frog, but <laughs> but we're here. We are alive. Um, and we're, we're gonna. Yay! <laughs> you said we are here, so I felt the need to say we are queer. Yes, yes. Um, and we have a a good topic today, and it's something that we actually touched on a little bit in the vagina episode. Um. And we talked a little bit about, I think, gender identity in that episode. We just sort of touched on it. But um, we decided we should have a whole conversation about gatekeeping. It's its own topic and specifically kind of gatekeeping in the queer and kink communities. Um, So I want to just read a definition, if that's cool with you. Yeah, totally. Go for it. So the Oxford Dictionary says that gatekeeping is the activity of controlling and usually limiting general access to something. So straightforward, nothing loaded going on there. And yeah, you know, it doesn't sound so scary, (laughs) so bad right off the bat, right? When you just read the definition. Right. And in reality, it's not always you know, a bad thing. Sometimes you must be this tall to safely ride this ride, which is literal gatekeeping, is important. And, you know, when you are using gatekeeping as it's meant to be used, it is to appropriately create a safe space for a group of people who need a safe space. And it can really be, you know, that simple. That's the hope. That's the ideal. So, you know, something on the surface, having a support group and saying, okay, we are going to limit attendance for this support group. We're going to keep it specific to survivors of a specific type of trauma. You know, that might allow the attendees to feel more comfortable opening up and getting support. Mm. Sounds good so far, right? (laughs) Right. Or like I was in a therapy group many years ago and it was specifically for people who had been diagnosed with bpd 
Right. So, you know, you're naming the group not to exclude anybody or make anybody feel left out, but you're literally creating a safe space for people to be in a situation where they feel like they can be open and honest and authentic because other people in the group have similar shared experiences. Yeah. Um, oh, jinx. No, go ahead. <laughs> go, go, go. Like, I'm really glad you mentioned that there can be a positive way to look at these when we were talking about it. Um, because I really wouldn't have thought of ways to put a positive spin on gatekeeping just because I think, I think I have so many negative feels about them and like some biases about them, but those are some pretty concrete examples of why gatekeeping happens in the first place. Yeah. So, I mean, it can become this really negative, unfortunate thing. And when it becomes so restrictive that a person who needs access to a safe space is denied entry and further marginalized, or when, you know, the gatekeeping is a way to camouflage something like really ugly discrimination and it can leave people with like identity crisis and imposter syndrome. It leaves people feeling sometimes like they're trapped in a closet um, or erases, you know, people's feelings of relevance. People sort of slip through the cracks. They don't fit into one group or another. So, you know, there are definitely some things that can go wrong. So I thought it was just kind of important to acknowledge that the idea of gatekeeping is supposed to come from a positive place, this you know, creating a safe space for someone who needs it. And I would encourage anybody who's thinking about doing any kind of gatekeeping for an event or or whatever, you know, to think about it and really examine, is this really where this thing is coming from? Am I really trying, you know, to create a safe space for someone who needs it? Um, or, you know, examining my own bias, is, is this something else? Um, and it can be tricky. Like it can kind of be a gray zone. It can be difficult to navigate. So, I mean, you were talking about being in a therapy group. Do you feel that having the diagnosis be something that was specific was generally positive? I do. Uh, just because, you know, when you have specific diagnoses, it feels like there's an added level of safety and camaraderie to uh, speaking with other people who have gone through exactly what you were experiencing or feeling. It's very comforting to talk about your symptoms or talk about some of the really bad thoughts you've had and to hear two or three people go like, Oh, Oh my God. Like I've been there too. Um, and not from like a place of sympathy where they don't understand your experience, but they still feel for your experience and really true empathy of like, yes, I know exactly what you're going through. Now, this is where things get squishy because we've given kind of an example of when it's done right, how it can be a really positive thing. But you know, I have participated in things like support groups for polyamory, and I have participated sometimes in, in things like online forums for people who have been in relationships with intimate partner violence, that kind of thing. And so on the surface, things might look, you know, like this is a, a really good thing. But imagine having, say, 
a support group for survivors of domestic violence. And the group says, okay, we're going to have this be a group for female survivors. You know, on the surface, it might not sound so terrible. Maybe, you know, eight out of 10 people in the group identify as having been abused by a male identifying person. And so they feel safer, you know, being in a group with female identifying members who have also survived this kind of violence. It doesn't sound so terrible. But, you know, what if the, you know, because a lot of these are like community things, right? What if a community is small and it doesn't have a lot of support groups? And what if there is a man, um, a male identifying person who has been a victim of or a survivor of domestic violence and wants to participate in the group? Now, the group leader has to weigh, you know, the voiced safety of the people who are already in the group who say we don't feel safe to continue to participate, you know, the needs of that group with the needs of that one person whose needs are in fact legitimate. And it's really kind of a lose-lose situation because somebody has got to feel like they can't participate and they can't get the support that they need. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to take it, you know, a step further, how are they even defining female? Like, are they only allowing AFAB attendees? Cause that's super shitty, you know? Mm -hmm. What about, you know, non-binary folks? Can they attend? Are you going to limit the group based on like what parts somebody has? So, you know, something that seems like it was formed with really good intentions and, you know, intending to create this safe space, it can still be, you know, a minefield to navigate. Mm -hmm. And like, I understand why it came to be a thing because there are some discord servers I'm in where there are separate spaces designed for submissives and dominance. And that one, a person who ascribes to one of those roles isn't supposed to be in the other channel so that both sides feel like they have a comfortable space to speak from and maybe troubleshoot if they're having issues But then somebody brought up, okay, well, what if I'm a switch? What if I have both roles within different relationships or even the same relationship? Like, where's the place for us? So they created a separate switch channel, but that just didn't end up working that well because it ended up just being kind of a quiet channel. And what even is a switch, right? You know, like I I don't identify as a switch, even though I have dynamics on either side of the slash because I don't switch within a dynamic and other people define it totally differently. So, you know, you might not be able to find a group that really folds you in. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're venturing kind of into the the territory of kink, right? Like we've given some black and white, you must be this tall to ride this ride examples um, and some real world examples that aren't really related to kink or to, you know, to gender or sexual orientation specifically. But Let's think about things that we see in the kink community. So like on the positive side, I can think of, okay, how about having a private play party and stating it's not just an open door because I'm having this in my home and I don't really feel cool with having total strangers in my home. So you have to be someone I know and I've invited to my home or I'm going to have this vetting process and people who have done the vetting process can attend. I'm pretty cool with that. You know, somebody's trying to have a safe event that is within their own private space within their home, 
if they don't want to have strangers there, if they only want to have sort of known people, I think, you know, even for a coffee date, most people don't just fling open their front door and say, hey, anybody who's walking by my house right now, come on in and have a cup of coffee. Right. You know? um, and now we're doing this like super intimate event where safety is even more of a factor. I can kind of understand. Yeah, absolutely. I think that if people are hosting parties, within their own homes, then absolutely it's a private event to do whatever the hell you are going to do. If you're not trying to be an event that is all inclusive, if you know that you're hosting a private thing and are catering to your own desires, preferences, what have you, it's your event. You get to do whatever the hell you want. Uh, I think what we're addressing in particular and what we'll get into in a moment is the problem on a larger public scale where there are events for specific groups of people that may have been created because a safe space was needed, but have become a way to be exclusive. And that some people who would say that they have that identity have certainly fallen through the cracks because they weren't blank enough. Right. You know, I mean, if you're thinking about like a big event, like a con or something, okay, gatekeeping, generally people need to age verify, whether it's an in-person con or something that's happening like on Zoom through a Discord server, you're going to need to show that you're a legal age of consent, you're an adult. Technically, that's gatekeeping. And it does. It keeps people safe. It keeps the organizers, the participants, everybody safe. Everyone's an adult. And then after that, you know, you enter the minefield. And <laughs> that's about the only easy, like, straightforward example that I can think of on a, yeah. a broad scale, like, where it's not going to get ugly for someone involved. I'm sure there are others. And I mean, again, like, this is done generally with positive intentions. But digging into something that is kind of going wrong. You know, you and I were talking about attending clubs, you know, or types of events where we've both seen that the price of admission at the door is different. It could be like free if you're a quote single lady. And, you know, I've seen like $80 for couples and 110 for a single man. That's a real thing that happens. Um, and it was kind of funny because we both said why, like what we thought the the club would say if they were asked why they do it. And we both had totally different answers. Do you remember what you said? Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, and from what I've understood from the public community, I believe that gendered pricing existed and still does exist in some spaces. Because in general, there is a higher quantity of male-identified people than female-identified people. Uh, I think in part because female-identified people don't always feel safe to go to those kinds of spaces or mm -hmm. don't need to go to those kinds of spaces because they've already found their people or are not interested in finding their people in that avenue. Uh, whereas I think my experience with male-identified people in general is that they're a little more willing to put themselves out there and go looking for the people that they want in their lives or just go like looking to have some fun with like maybe some no strings attached, which is kind of why some people go to those clubs so they can find a play partner so they can just like have a little date for the evening, have some fun and go home. 
I mean, I've, I've had the distinct feeling that there's more to it sometimes than that because not all people who go to a club or an event as a couple want to play with other people. And so, you know, when you come as a couple, you're not necessarily increasing the number of people in the space who want to play with other attendees. And oh, yet, absolutely. It's, you know, it's still less expensive to come as a couple, you know, regardless of gender or orientation or anything else. If you come with another person, it costs less than if you come alone and, you know, a male identifying person. And there's been sort of hinting that, like, sometimes, you know, cis, single, hetero men kind of all get painted with this sort of broad brush of being like kind of bad party goers. <laughs> so, I mean, there, you know, I, I can't say that I haven't experienced what some people say is the reason for these type of, of rules and wanting to sort of balance that out. And like you said, you know, to make it seem like a safe space or an encouraging, inviting space for female identifying people you know, the, the message behind that is there's some reason why it might not feel safe and why the balance needs to be tipped a little bit. So I think it's probably both. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I think it is a little bit of both. And really, I think that it's just more about clubs understanding that there's just an imbalance in the community, especially in like the kink community and really wanting to like play the numbers game of like, making sure the people who are paying the highest amount of money want to come back. So I think there's a bit of capitalism in there too. Uh, that to encourage the male identified people to keep coming, if that's the demographic they're seeing the most of that, they have to make it seem like they're always going to be a good pool of female identified people to choose from. If that's what they're looking for. Ah, uh, so it's like female bait. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And and before people come for us who are listening to this, by the way, um, <laughs> just know that like we are speaking from like a kind of heteronormative lens for this part in particular, just because that's what we've witnessed with gender pricing is that they're assuming that there are two genders. And that the men will look for the women and the women will look for the men. And that that is why gendered pricing began. Um, but that does not mean we agree <laughs> with any of right. this because we we're actually squicked out. <laughs> yeah, we're really squicked out. Honestly, uh, we were just like theorizing on why gendered pricing might have happened in the first place. And we didn't Google it. So I'm sure if we had Googled it, we'd probably come up with some articles and shit that exist in the world. Uh, but we're here to give our opinions. So yeah. <laughs> right. And also because I was personally kind of like really surprised when I encountered it for the first time. And I was kind of like, why? Like what's going on here? And, you know, I was kind of struck by it. And I'm like, okay, you know, I would not want to come to this place alone, alone. Like I might come with friends. I don't would not necessarily feel like I had to come with a partner or a play partner. But, you know, this is like, a party in an industrial warehouse in like an area of town where the Uber driver is like, are you sure? Literally, I'm not even joking. Like, are you sure you want to get out and go into that place? <laughs> you know, cause it's like an abandoned warehouse, right? Like there's, yeah. you know, there's not a lot of civilization around and like, would I like drive myself to that event and walk in alone and feel safe doing that? No way. 
And so, you know, I can sort of see where some of these things have come from, but at the same time, it like it squicks me out that pricing for anything would be based on like gender or whether or not you're partnered. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I understand that the clubs are a business, right? Like they're not mm-hmm. a safe space. So, you know, they're not necessarily gatekeeping because they have these high lofty ideas. They want to make money. They want to have a fun party. And however they want to achieve that, like it, it's not necessarily meant to be super ethical. You know, it's, it's intended right. to produce money and produce certain results. Right, because capitalism and ethics are never going to be friends. Um, I did want to take a quick sidebar about what we mean when we say safe space, uh, because I think that can mean really different things to different people, some of whom may have a negative connotation of it and some of whom may have a positive connotation of it. Mm -hmm. Just remember, or keep in mind, that safety means different things to different people. It's very similar to risk profiles, that safety profiles are a thing, that everyone's going to have a different definition of what is safe to them based on their life experiences. And that's really the heart of the issue, right? Because gatekeeping is one person decides what they feel like is safe Mm -hmm. for a certain group of people. And then throws up the walls and says, this is my vision of what is safe. Or, you know, a couple of people say together, this is our vision of what is safe for this really specific group. Mm. And and then they throw the walls up. And so because safe, because who is a member of this group who is not a member is so subjective just at a base level, regardless of what kind of thing you're talking about, you know, that's where we get into, you know, these problems in the first place. And like I said, you know, it can have some really a positive effects when it's used well. <laughs> and I can't say that, like, you know, there are a lot of examples where I feel like I can say, like, wow, that was like a really, you know, excited from the things like the age bar or whatever, like that was a really like excellent use of gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we really talk about are like the negative things and where it goes wrong. But I I do believe that a lot of times it starts with good intentions and gets out of hand. Yeah. And so we were going to kind of shift the focus to talking about gatekeeping more in the queer community. So not necessarily just kink, but, you know, queer community in general. Do you want to say a little bit about where you've observed that kind of situation? Where... I have experienced it personally, which was kind of what I think got us on this topic in the first place, was that I used to go to an event that was marketed as a queer-only event. I thought, great, cool, awesome, I'm going to get to meet some people. It was a dungeon takeover that was designed as like a two-day party, where everybody would go to a local hotel overnight and then come back to the dungeon the next day it was so packed maybe like 80 to 100 queer dynifying people would go to these parties there would be a ton of play there would be like a bunch of like queer gangbangs which are some of the hottest things i have ever seen and i was in a place where i really wanted to have more queer experiences So I was very actively seeking to be around more of my people. 
Uh, I went to these quite a few times and had a really mixed experience uh, for myself. At the time, I was completely hetero presenting if you were looking at me from like a very surface level perspective, I suppose, um, that anyone who looked at me would have thought like, okay, a het cis femme, like, what is she doing here? She must be an ally. Uh, Like, that's pretty much the impression I got because I, you know, I have always worn dresses. I've always had long hair. Uh, I haven't, half of it's gone from an undercut now that I've had for like four years. But back then I just had long, pretty brown hair that had never been dyed. And I still don't have any tattoos. Like there's nothing about me that really reads as alternative. And that haircut was kind of like intentional, right? Wasn't that sort of a part of this, if I recall? Well, yes, I was in school for performing at the time. So I couldn't have... Like, I couldn't really mess with my hair that much. I couldn't really get tattoos that would be visible unless I was going to cover them up whenever I did a show, and I just wasn't willing to put in that much effort. Uh, So that's why I I looked the way I looked at the time. Um, But then I'd been wanting an undercut for years, partially because of the gatekeeping experience I had. Because it really, from, like, an outsider-feeling person looking in perspective seemed like if you didn't have some kind of funny colored hair or a lot of piercings or some part of your hair shaved or tattoos that you didn't fit in as readily unless you came with somebody else. Uh, And that was particularly difficult for me. Like, I'm sure it's not true of all spaces. It just felt true for me as somebody who felt like an outsider, but who desperately did not want to be an outsider because I very much identify as queer. I definitely met some good friends along the way, had some fun, hot scenes, but also faced a fair amount of rejection or like disinterest just because of their perception of me. Um, And that's where really this whole conversation for us had started was me mentioning that in a previous thing and being like, oh, we should just talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. It just feels... (laughs) really awful to not feel included in a space that's specifically meant for your marginalized identity. Uh, And especially when you're trying to find your own people. I mean, part of it, it could have been none of what I look like. And maybe that was just my perception. Maybe it was just because I was shy or that I really didn't know a lot of people, but that hasn't been my experience since I slightly changed my appearance and started exploring my gender. So you feel like with the outward changes that you've made with your appearance, it's sort of validated that experience that you had as being kind of an accurate perception because you changed those things and then things sort of changed for you. I know it's not all of it for sure. I'm sure part of it is just me feeling insecure, but I did definitely notice a change in queer interest in me when I changed my appearance to something that was viewed as more stereotypically queer. Got it. And like, again, this is just my experience of what I've noticed along the way. There could be nothing more trending to it than that. And yet I'm having like all kinds of empathy feels because, you know, I think that this is a common experience, but I, you know, I have felt that way. And 
you know, not really being someone who like, I, I've always like my personal goal in life has always been to live as my most authentic self. Same. Right. And so like the concept of changing something about the way that I look, the concept inside of me, like of changing something about myself that I might like, or that might feel right, because it doesn't convey a certain message to somebody else on the outside feels kind of bad. So while I want to be accepted, it's like, you know, I've sort of worked really hard to reach a place. Like I know you sort of talked about, I guess it wasn't really so much changing for other people. Like there were things that you wanted to change about yourself that you couldn't because of the environment Mm. that you were in, you know, you know, you saw yourself presenting a certain way that wasn't allowed based on your environment, but you know, I've worked really hard to kind of get to a place where I feel comfortable, where I feel, you know, like I'm living as my most authentic self. And so it's hard because I feel like my queerness is sort of a little bit invisible, but I also don't want to intentionally change something about myself to fly a flag, or at least that's how I I felt for a long time. And then I had this experience of actually wanting to fly a flag and like trying to figure out how I can do that without changing something that's sort of essential about myself. And forever, like I didn't feel like I could even attend like a pride event, like a public pride event, because same thing that you said, like, you know, people are going to look at me and think, oh, she must be an ally because like there is nothing outwardly queer at all about this person. Um, Not that there's anything <laughs> wrong with that. We love our ally friends. We just don't like people deciding our identity for us. Right. And, you know, and also, like I said, you know, like I don't really like to go to big events alone and, you know, I wasn't sure which one to choose. Like, do I just want to like go to a parade and like, you know, for like several years running, I like agonized, like during, you know, all of the Pride Month celebrations in my local area and just like didn't do it and felt super shitty. And, you know, I was working on a, a lot of things myself. I was struggling with sort of this, like, am I bisexual? Am I pansexual? Like, I don't even know what mm-hmm. label put on myself for a long time anyway. That's how I, I was struggling, like, between those two things. And both of those things are <laughs> queer. So, you know, for the sake of something like Pride, it really shouldn't have mattered. But I felt like I should, like, I have, I'm an adult person and I've reached, you know, this, this point in my life where I'm, like, supposed to be living as my authentic self and I can't even answer this question for <laughs> myself. Like, that's like, you know, self-gaslighting, like imposter syndrome, you know, level stuff. And it all came down to this crisis of, I'm going to buy a t-shirt. I'm going to, I'm going to effing go. And I'm literally going to buy a flag or t-shirt that is like the pansexual pride flag. So that, you know, if I don't change anything else about the way I physically look, it will you know, effing say it on my damn t-shirt. And, you know, so then it will just, you know, it will be clear, like, this is what I want to project. This is a part of myself that I want to show to the world without changing other things about myself. And I went to Provincetown, okay? I've never been there In Massachusetts Pride. It was my first real Pride. 
And like they have a massive thriving mm. queer community. And like every shop in town was selling pride gear for their mm. event, you know, for their parade and like all well, many events that were going on that weekend. And I went and I went into literally like every single shop on that strip and I could not find one effing t-shirt or flag or anything at all that was pansexual like like actively tried for hours and hours and hours and hours and so I'm like wearing like like my little like you know rainbow Mm -hmm. skirt (laughs) and I painted my toes like a rainbow and I just wanted this effing t-shirt and it was like I had had, like emotionally built it up I had put so much on it and then to like show up and actually do the thing and then not be able to find one that actually represented my identity. Like I was crushed. Mm-hmm. And like it's I know it sounds stupid about this t-shirt, but like fam right, but it's it's so much more than that. Like it's so much more than just the item, just the t-shirt, just the whatever it is. It's about the larger issue of representation. Just like how they, like certain animators, are starting to make moves to include more main BIPOC characters because I think we're, a lot of the country is finally getting around to the realization that every type of person wants to see themselves represented at some point because it reminds us that we're not alone. And it reminds us that we have a community and that we have support. So I understand why there is much more lesbian, gay, trans, everything. And some, and to a lesser extent, bisexual things, although bisexuals get such a bad rap. But like the QIA. That's like right, the whole own thing. thing. But like. Right, but like the QIA plus 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 question mark question mark um, was all added probably what within the past ten years, maybe even five years, um, that it turned into the alphabet mafia, which is a phrase that I love. <laughs> but yeah, it's I mean it really started as pretty kind of black and white gay or lesbian. And then everything started evolving from there as we realized that there are more and more of us who are changing and transitioning and questioning and maybe stay fluid. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that there are types of queerness, just like types of anything else, that tend to be a little bit more outwardly invisible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, you know, I just like, I I go back to that moment, like, you know, like literally having searched dozens of shops like six times over and having like this little crisis because I was just like, I, you know what, like I I have come this far and it felt like Mm -hmm. a gate, you know, like it felt like this wall and I'm like, I've come this far and like too far to go back. But I'm just like stuck at this place. And, you know, I I think a lot of people get to that place where they're like, you know, damn it, I'm going to do the thing. Like, I see those people over there and I am like really confident internally that those are my people. But you walk up to the door and knock 
and the door, you know, if it opens at all, you have people looking back at you and they're like, I don't think you're one of us. Like one of these things is not like the other. And you're like, but no, no, like really, like I feel it in my soul, like all the way down in my bones. Like I really think this is for me. And then to have somebody say no is crushing um, or it can be. So, you know, you and I were talking a little bit about this sort of concept of like femme identity, mm. but you know, that is a, an identity that has a whole history rooted in queerness. And it's something that I've done a lot of reading about and sort of explored because it was something that I, you know, like I have not fully put that sort of, um, you know, t-shirt on myself, you know, but just sort of exploring it and, you know, what it is not is synonymous with feminine or female. And, you know, when people look at me, even though I am a queer person, people, I'm, I'm pretty confident, you know, I'm not in anybody else's head, but I'm pretty confident people don't like look at me and say like, that's a queer femme person. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Because you know me and you see me and um, I love you for that. And I see you too. Is this the part where we cry for the first time on the podcast? Oh, I think this would be the part where just like we make out for the first time if we were like in person. But <laughs> And I didn't have the plague. <laughs> Damn it. I'm going to get out of this house and not <laughs> COVID or whatever. Um, this is what I get for That's trying true. to leave my house. But seriously, like, you know, it's like a moment, you know, but – you know, being seen is is such a, a validating and important thing. And not everybody has someone in their life that, you know, a lot of people don't, I think, have even one person who they feel like really, truly mm. sees them, you know, and I have been in that place in my own life at times, you know, and it, it's not a fun place to be. So anyway, I mean, let's, let's kind of wrap it up. Um, this has been sort of a, a chaotic and rambling discussion, but it's because it's a complicated issue, right? The reality is that gatekeeping is a very complicated issue because identity is an extremely complicated issue. And anytime you have gatekeeping, you have, you know, a person or a group deciding, you know, what belongs and what doesn't, rather than individuals just being able to say, you know, I belong, um, and own it and have that be okay. And so, you know, it's just food for thought. If you're planning an event, um, you know, or, or whatever, um, if you find yourself in the position where you have to be a gatekeeper, you know, maybe take into consideration that you can't always tell on the outside what somebody's identity is. And, you know, even if you can separate things out, ask yourself, should I? And what is my motive here? Am I trying to keep people safe? Or am I trying to keep something exclusive for other reasons? Um, You know, because inclusivity is important. Next up, we have HypnoStory, he, they, and I'm really excited to have them here today to talk about a few exciting topics. How are you today? I am great. Really happy to be here. Yay. (laughs) And it happens to be somebody's birthday when we're recording. I won't say what actual date it is, but happy birthday. Well, thank you. And it's nice to be able to spend some time with you today. I wish we could celebrate properly, maybe a little bit in the future. 
that would be lovely. Um, so today we're going to talk a little bit about collaring, which I'm excited for. But before we really dive in, I know you attended an awesome event recently, and I was really bummed to miss it. So how was Nihu? It was great. We had so much fun. I mean, this was our first time really being in kinky community in person with people since the pandemic started in March of 2020. And it just felt so good. And yeah, there were a lot of precautions. Masks were mandatory in con space. Everybody was asked to be tested before they came and so forth. But it was it was still really good to get to be in the same room with people, to get to hug them if they were comfortable with that. And it just was so nice to, you know, to just get to be together in community. Yeah, I'm starting to to venture out a little bit into public, but I still have not done an in-person kink event for a while. So um, you were sort of brave and <laughs> put yourself out there, and I'm, I'm hoping to do the same t- sometime soon. Yeah, I, 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 I won't lie that I had some anxiety about it and continued to have some anxiety about it, but um, I, I felt like it was worth it that I sort of think about it as a risk budget that that was a higher risk activity than we normally do. And I would certainly not be comfortable with us taking that kind of risk on a regular basis. But while the numbers were relatively low, it seemed like a reasonable risk to take occasionally. And we were really, really glad that we did all three of us. Fair enough. Did you get to attend any events or classes or were you mostly buried under teaching? I was mostly teaching. We taught five classes, one of which is six, is three hours long. And typically when we do that, we don't get to go to very many classes. We did get to go to one on Thursday. That's a very introductory kind of uh, 101 glossary of HypnoKink uh, class that's taught by About Blank and Talia from Hypnosis New Jersey, who are friends of ours. And so we went to see what they did. And it was really funny because every term they introduced had some kind of meme that they had altered to be about hypnokink that went with it. Oh, cute. It it was really cute. And it was really fun. And they're lovely to watch together. I've known about Blank for quite a few years, but this was our first time meeting their partner, Talia, uh, who is just delightful. And so that was wonderful. And then we got to see, uh, Panda only got to see part of it, but I got to see Zany Danger's class, breath play, hypnotic breath play, that's uh, Zany and Sleeping Girl. And the two of them together is always magical, just getting to watch them do stuff. I've seen that class before, and it's always great. I love breath play. I'm really jelly that I missed all of this cool stuff. I had a really nice weekend away with Mac and it was what we needed in the moment. And so I'm definitely glad that we had that time together, but I am a little bit bummed that I missed out. Yeah. It, there'll be more cons. You know, we've got, you know, kink school coming up in May. Beguiled this summer is both online and in person. Panda and I will be teaching for that one online because mostly of travel cost. Where is that taking place? Chicago. Got it. All right. Well, I'm sure we're going to have a lot um, of updates in the future about events we're going to, teaching at, 
kinky happenings, things that we are just getting up to, general shenanigans. But I want to get into our main topic a little bit. So we're going to talk about callers today. And I feel like for people who are sort of new to lifestyle, it seems like this would be a really specific defined thing, but really it's extremely individual. And not all callers mean the same thing. They hold the meaning that's consented to by the parties that are giving and receiving them. Sometimes BDSM relationships are or dynamics are marked by other types of rituals, talismans, markings. Not all collars are actually even something worn around the neck. So it really is such a personal thing. And so I really think the best way to sort of approach it right out of the gate is to talk a little bit about our personal experiences with collaring. And I I know that you have collared partners. So I'm wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I've formally collared Yoshi when he was submissive to me, which was sort of the first roughly half of our relationship. And then as things changed, it became clear that really he was more in line with a kind of switchy power neutral overall power neutral dynamic uh which is fine and has worked out really well for both of us but basically we did a week with two weekends and the first weekend was our vanilla wedding with family and some very close friends and partners and but it, it was a fairly normal vanilla wedding you know that everybody's parents would be comfortable with and so forth and then a week later, we did a formal collaring ceremony with our kinky friends and chosen family and had a giant play party, which was pretty awesome. And so, you know, it was a ritual and it's about deciding what is the significance of this thing. And for us, We put the collaring after the marriage because in our conversation and negotiation, we felt that our relationship as partners came before our relationship as dominant and submissive. And that we felt symbolically like that ordering made sense to us and that that the collaring existed within the marriage. There are other people who make the opposite choice, and that's completely fine if that's what feels like a more accurate reflection of their relationship. But we did something that looked kind of like a wedding in structure. You know, there was an aisle. We all processed uh, down the aisle, and our other partners – uh, Yoshi and my other partners carried the items, the collar and the pocket watch and chain that Yoshi gave me. Um, and, you know, and we actually were lucky that we got to have an officiant who really does this because I'm fortunate to have a partner that has a lot of experience writing and leading sort of formal ritual and religious ceremony who officiated both our wedding and our collaring. And that was really wonderful. But there was a lot of discussion about what does this mean? You know, why are we doing this? What 
are we promising each other? What are we asking the community to support us in? And building the building the ceremony around that. And and just to be clear, it wasn't very long, it wasn't very complicated, it doesn't have to be. But everything in it had been thought through and was there for a reason. And I think that doing that is really powerful. Now, you're a polyamorous person and you have mm-hmm. other partners and at least one other partner, if I'm correct, wears your collar. That's correct. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, since we're saying how this is such an individual thing, maybe that was a different and sort of unique experience or? We have not done a formal collaring uh, with Panda. We probably will do a sort of hand fasting or some other kind of wedding equivalent ceremony because legally we can't marry a third person. Um, We would if we could, but we'll do something like that, that probably will have a a more formal collaring as a part of it. But we basically, I gave Panda a collar at the point in the relationship where it felt like it kind of was there in everything but the physical form. So our relationship had deepened to the point that it was really clear to both of us that Panda was my submissive and deeply so and committed to that. And so I didn't feel like there needed to be a lot of ceremony. And likewise, the first caller I gave Yoshi, there wasn't a lot of ceremony to it because it really was an object that was there to represent what already existed. And and I've never thought about it in those terms, but as I'm talking about it, that's kind of what I was looking for. That Yoshi and I talked a lot, and, and p- with Panda too, about when did we feel like giving her a collar was appropriate? You know, when did it make sense? And part of that was that she was in another relationship that she was collared in before when we got together. It was, I mean, it was all consensual that it was a polyamorous relationship, but you know, we weren't, we certainly weren't going to consider collaring her while she was collared to somebody else, and nor would she have accepted a collar. And then when that relationship dissolved, she, you know, we all started to talk about it more. And I wanted enough time that it didn't feel like replacing one collar with another. Because I thought that that kind of tied a relationship that really had nothing to do with Yoshi and I into our relationship with Panda in a way that was probably not useful, you know, and it was a number of months and it basically got to the point that it was just like, we all kind of, Yoshi and I really kind of looked at each other and said, this feels right. It feels ready. So we're going to do this. And I I think that that's really a 
a pretty good segue into talking about, you know, one of our topics, which is that in addition to being a highly individual thing and very specific to each individual dynamic, each individual relationship, callers can sometimes be sort of changed out as a relationship progresses. They can mark different types of milestones. Sometimes people wear one type of collar to sort of signify an earlier relationship phase, like a training dynamic, a period of consideration where this is a serious relationship and in kink settings, you want to be recognized as being in dynamic, that sort of thing but maybe not have not necessarily decided yet to take the step of doing what you consider to be a permanent collaring, which might be something more serious. And thinking about my own experiences with collaring, I have worn collars twice in my, in my life. And the first one was not a permanent collar. It was a, a collar of consideration. And it was looked at pretty much like an engagement ring would be the sort of vanilla equivalent. And it was done at a, a point in time when that relationship became serious enough that we were discussing it potentially being a lifetime relationship. And we both had a, a very clear vision in our mind about what a permanent collaring would mean and, you know, when we might approach that and take that next step. And that is a relationship that did actually get dissolved. And now, um, you know, I'm still a polyamorous person. I'm in relationships with several different people. And um, I do currently wear a collar that is permanent. It is Max Collar. He's also on the show. You've heard me talk about him being my daddy quite a bit. I do wear his collar. And I think it's actually really interesting to think about because sometimes people think, well, you're a self-identified Dom, how could you be wearing a collar? And for me, it's sort of a representation of how I view DS as a spectrum. This is something that I've talked about a lot and how each relationship has its own dynamics. So even though most of the time the role that I identify as is dominant, and I don't really even consider myself to be a switch. I do have a relationship that is a permanent relationship where I am on the other side of the slash and I am legally married to my other partner and I don't really do hierarchy in my poly. I just sort of allow relationships to become what they're meant to be, whatever that is. And when it sort of reached the point with Mac where we decided that this was a lifetime commitment. We decided to do a hand fasting ceremony and a collaring at the same time. And I did give him something in exchange. He wears a ring. It was originally actually a bracelet, but we decided to swap that out for a ring a little bit later just because the bracelet was getting in the way and damaged. And um, we felt like it would be a better fit, but it does carry the same meaning. We have a primal dynamic it was important to us to feel like we were both marking each other and um, to have that relationship represented in a physical way. And our ceremony was very private. It was just the two of us in nature. Um, we had a spiritual ceremony involving a, a druidic ritual, which was important to us. And I did film it. It was really a beautiful, intimate thing that we planned together. We hand wove our hand fasting cord with 
certain crystals and um, talismans that were representative of the relationship. And I have both a day collar, which has a, a little rainbow moonstone heart in it that I wear all the time. And it just looks like a necklace. And if you're not in the lifestyle, you probably wouldn't look at it and think that it was anything else. And then I also have a um, a vegan leather <laughs> um, collar, which has a name that was given to me just by Mac, hand stamped by him into it, and um, and a lock on it. And that's a very obvious sort of BDSM style collar. It's a you know a leather looking collar with a lock on it and a name stamped on it. And that's something that I wear for private play sometimes, but also in kink settings where that's acceptable. And you know that's something that we can talk about a little bit. The difference between a sort of kink space collar and a day collar. I also have a different type of marking on my body. I do have a piercing and the jewelry has max initials in it. Um, and actually that broke <laughs> over the weekend during some very fun play, which was very unfortunate. The The little charm with the initials broke off and we were both very upset about it. So we have ordered a replacement, but I really like just the idea of something that I don't have to think about that I can shower with that's there all the time that isn't going away, even if, you know, for whatever reason I had to take off all of my other jewelry, that marking would still be there. And I think it's worth saying, right? These objects are not magical other than with the power that we imbue them with. They're symbols. And to me, the power stays with the symbol. And so, you know, this talisman, this this piece of jewelry broke. And yes, that's upsetting, of course, but you can replace it with another one that has the same significance because you and Mac decide it has the same significance. And I think that's a really important thing, right? That if um, both Yoshi's collars and Panda's collars, day collars, have broken a number of times because they're strings of beads that I made. They're stone beads on wire string with a heart-shaped lock to close. And until I found exactly the right kind of wire, they would just wear away and eventually snap. And yeah, that's really hard when it happens. But I think it's important to recognize that it's breaking a symbol that doesn't have to be symbolic that the relationship is breaking right? I would get more wire. I would restring the beads. Or even if the beads were lost, we could use all new beads. But it really would still be the same collar because we decide that it is. Absolutely. You know, it's it's a symbol that you give power. And we've had several damaged pieces of jewelry within my family as well. And actually a couple of misplaced pieces. Actually, in my vanilla relationship, my partner has lost his wedding ring twice within our own home. <laughs> and um, mostly because neither of us like to sleep with jewelry on our, our hands for safety and medical reasons. But in any case, he's lost two of them at this point. And it was really painful, especially when the first one was lost. But we both have always sort of treated our, our rings as a symbol of our 
you know, our relationship and our dynamic that we wear as often as possible. But like, if we have to take them off because we want to protect them because we're going to the beach and don't want to risk losing them, you know, that's never been something that's been problematic. I often will take mine off if I'm going camping or somewhere where it's likely to get lost or damaged. And the thing that we just say to each other on a regular basis is we're still married you know, ring or no ring, we're still married. That doesn't go away. It's just a physical representation of that bond. And I feel the exact same way about the collar and, you know, the piercing jewelry. Yeah. I think that that's really something, the importance of which is hard to overstate. Yeah. I just, I think the importance of that is hard to overstate. And it's not that it's not emotional or sentimental. It's just that, you know, the important thing, at least in my opinion, the important thing (laughs) should be the bond. And then, you know, everything else is um, a symbolism, which is important, but it doesn't make your bond damaged if your jewelry gets damaged. And, um, you know, being most of the time on the other side of the slash, you know, if I had a relationship where... I had a partner who was my submissive. I don't think that wearing Max collar would prevent me from collaring someone else. So to kind of answer that question, if you're a dominant, why would you wear a collar? It's it's really just about the individual arrangement I have with each of my partners that isn't dependent on the relationships that I have with the others. And that's just kind of representative of how I like to do my poly overall. Yeah. I mean, it's... And that's the thing, you know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you've heard us say this in a variety of different contexts, that there's no one true way so long as everyone is adults and there's enthusiastic informed consent. You can build this however you want. You know, I know that there are some people, I'm a switch, and you know, occasionally. So I'll say something else about Panda and Colors, which is that we decided, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, that Panda was wanting to feel a little more dynamic and wanted a little more ritual around our dynamic on a daily basis. And so we decided that it was going to wear a um, a dog collar whenever it was home. Uh, and this is a, a collar I had bought for Panda as a play caller early in our relationship, just because I thought it would be fun. And I got a group on for embroidered dog collars. And so I got them one and we used it as a play caller. And then we decided that when Panda gets home, either she puts the collar on or they bring it to me to put on and whatever you know, sort of however that goes. But often, if Panda doesn't think of it, particularly if she's sort of out of sorts from work, you know, as it was a hard day or whatever, she'll come home and I'll say, pet, go get your collar, bring it and kneel for me to put it on. And I just assert that little bit of dynamic. And that helps her to remember that she's home. And to come into that safe space that's held in our relationship. But that's all because that's what we've evolved. Right. And I I think we've actually tossed out a couple of terms. So I'm just going to kind of circle back and touch on some of those. And again, 
like we've said, it's very individual. So you could ask five different people this and get a different answer about what each of these things are. And yet these are still terms that are widely used in lifestyle communities. So, you know, sometimes you hear about a play caller, which doesn't necessarily have a great meaning beyond that it signifies the start of a specific scene, a specific type of play, a headspace, an aesthetic preference, maybe something, for example, like you were mentioning, that is a signal for something, whatever you decide that is. Maybe when you put on the collar, you're in pet space or you're in subspace, or it signifies the start of a scene and you've agreed that you're going to be in dynamic when you're wearing the collar and not in dynamic when you're not. But it doesn't necessarily have a permanent symbolism for the relationship or the dynamic overall. Then sometimes you hear about things like training collars or collars of consideration, which, um, you know, I mentioned I had had one before, but it could be something that you give to signify this relationship is serious and this is my you know, submissive partner right now. It may not be that you've made a permanent lifelong commitment, but that the relationship is serious enough that you want to say, you know, we are considering this or we are on a path to something greater, which may or may not be a permanent collaring. And then you have sort of this level of permanent collars, which could be a day collar, which might be something that looks very vanilla, but has symbolism that you could wear anywhere, you know, um, Versus a kink collar, which might very obviously look like a BDSM style collar that maybe isn't something you could wear to the office, depending on where you work. I know some people wear their um, their one collar all the time, but you can sort of see there's quite a bit of variation in how people use them. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll add another word, which I think is mine, um, that when I first collared Yoshi and we were talking about, well, what is this collar? What does it mean? It wasn't a formal collar that was a part of a collaring ceremony for a lifetime relationship. We knew we planned to do that down the road. And I said, well, it's not a training collar because I'm not training you. And I don't really want to call it a consideration collar either because I don't feel like there's anything to consider. We've decided that we're doing this. We're just not ready to do it yet. And so I decided to call it a deepening collar because to me, it represented the continuing deepening of the relationship. And so, you know, we just picked words that work for us. Which is lovely. So we had a couple other things that we wanted to talk about. Um, one of which is hypnotic collars and, I know you had a, an awful lot you wanted to say about that, so I'm just going to let you go for it. Sure. So a few things. One thing you can do is use a collar as a hypnotic trigger, right? You can give somebody the suggestion that, you know, when I and only I put this collar on you and you hear it snap closed and you feel it around your neck and it's safe and appropriate, you will become XYZ right? It'll put you into puppy space. It will put you into subspace. It will drop you deeply into trance and, you know, and ready to receive my orders. You can do whatever you want, right? But you can kind of treat it, I mean, I like magic, so I tend to think of it as an enchanted object, but use whatever metaphor and whatever framing you want and feels good to you. Uh, but the idea that a state can be linked to an object 
And that's something to be aware of because that can happen on its own through classical conditioning, which doesn't require your intention, right? So let's say you have a pet collar and you only wear it when you're going to pet play and you go into puppy headspace every time you put the collar on and you do stuff and you get into puppy headspace and you do puppy play and you have a great time. Well, after a little while, and for some people it doesn't take very long, for other people it might take longer, whenever you put that collar on, I bet you're going to start heading for puppy headspace because your unconscious is associating the puppy headspace with the collar, just like Pavlov's dogs, right? Same mechanism. So that's one thing with hypnotic collars. The other thing that's really fun is so as I said, both Yoshi and Panda's collars, day collars, lock. And by the way, if you need um, nickel-free locks, because both Yoshi and Panda have skin sensitivities to nickel, um, you can get these wonderful st- surgical stainless heart-shaped padlocks from a company called To Be His. And I think if you Google To Be His collars, you'll find them. And they can even do custom engraving on them now. So Panda's Lock has our housemark engraved on the back of it, and it's worn with that side out. That's what we've chosen. So, you know, then there's this thing about the key, right? And it's kind of hot, the idea that the submissive can't take their collar off without the dominant's permission. But it could also be a real problem, right? Because if if they were hurt or something like that, and it needed to come off, I would much rather than be able to unlock it than have to cut the wire or risk not having a tool to cut the wire and having it be a problem. So what I did with Yoshi is we agreed that the key for the collar, or that a key, there are several, a key for his collar was going to be on his key ring. But that we were going to set up amnesia, but with careful safeties. So on a day-to-day basis, he could not consciously remember how his collar gets removed. He just knows that I can take it off. I had a key on my ring, too. But that he also knows that there are safeties there that will take care of it if it was ever needed. And that's something I would test pretty carefully uh, before counting on it just to make sure that it's going to work the way you think it does. And that's something we did. We played with it a little bit and we were both really comfortable with it. And that allowed Yoshi to forget that he had that key on his ring unless it became important. And that's something that worked really well for his brain. I'm giggling in my brain over here. Cause it's not like I have, you know, a big giant fetish for things to do with hypnosis and, and collars. It's not and like keys. I wrote several books about <laughs> these things. But let me also say, I asked Panda if she wanted to do the same thing. And she didn't. She That didn't feel good to her. And so with her, it's a much subtler, softer thing. That's just sort of that the key is on her key ring. And if she doesn't actually need it, then she kind of doesn't know it's there, but more because she's just not thinking about it. But anytime it became important, she would know. 
We also have a, a symbolic key and a hypnotic key. And then there is like the real one that actually takes the thing off. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, when we use, because my day caller has a regular clasp. So that's something that if I need to, I could remove on my own. And I, I just choose not to. I wear it as often as possible unless our rule is basically if I or the caller would suffer harm by wearing it, that is when I take it off. So it's kind of a a specific agreement that we have about it. But with the kink collar, which is an actual heart-shaped sort of padlock, generally what we do is when we put it on, we put the physical key in a place where we can both see and reach it should there be an emergency. And otherwise, it's something that my daddy keeps on his person um, in a box with the collar so that everything is together. And um, then we have a key that I actually made for him out of resin with flowers. And it's sort of more of a symbolic key. And I actually gave that to him. It was one of the things that I gave to him at our collaring ceremony. And um, even though it doesn't really open the physical lock, that's something that he can keep. That's sort of a, a symbol of me sort of giving him the the power. And it's something that we incorporate into a lot of our play with hypnosis. And I, I know I've talked a lot about the turn the key book, but that's something that we do in our real dynamic when we do hypnosis play where he mimes turning a key to sort of snap me back and forth to toggle between doll space and human space. And, and it's really hot. Yeah, it's very hot. Um, it's something that I, I really enjoy. So there are several different types of keys involved and it might not make sense to anybody else, but it makes sense to us, which is the whole point. And I have never really done a lot of like pet play, but it's something that I explored when I was writing Take the Lead, which is the third book in the series. And it, it's heavily focused on hypnotic pet and pony play And so I had a really fun time sort of fantasizing about this idea of a collar that you could put on your submissive that would be, as you were saying, you know, a trigger for a certain type of headspace, but with hypnosis involved. And so um, for pet space, which was sort of like a puppy space for one of the characters and also a bridal being used for pony play for a different um, set of characters. And so that was really fun to sort of play with in my mind, even though it's not something that I've done in real life. But it wouldn't surprise me if someday you had a submissive that you did that with. Absolutely. (laughs) So, um, yeah, the stuff that comes out of my um, very depraved (laughs) and twisted mind in my novels is definitely stuff that could find its way, you know, into my dynamics or, you know, my bedroom. So it, it was a fun concept to play with, for sure. And I, I made it a point in the story to differentiate between the collar that was used for hypnosis to sort of switch back and forth between human and puppy space and a permanent collar that was received at the end that would never come off that um, was representative of the dynamic and the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really lovely. So... We've talked a lot about really positive things, bonding, connection, reinforcing the dynamic, public symbolism of a relationship, if that's something that you want to be outwardly visible, just many different uses and benefits for a caller. But I think it's worth mentioning 
you know, what can happen where collaring goes wrong or there's miscommunication about the meaning of a collar. I feel like it's worth addressing that. Yeah. I mean, it's like any other big relationship thing that if there isn't good communication and understanding about it can turn into a real landmine Um, that something as simple as the submissive thinking it's okay to take the collar off to do some specific act without asking. And the dominant could feel like that was a breach of trust, right? Or the dominant taking the collar away as a punishment, if that's not something that was a negotiated part of the dynamic, right? These things, we're imbuing them with a lot of symbolism and that makes them powerful because we're giving them that symbolism. And so, we need to treat them with the care and respect that the amount of symbolism we imbue them with deserves. And also just being on the same page. So I think in vanilla relationships, there's this sort of etiquette or this sort of unspoken rule that it is very unusual to give a ring in a relationship just as, say, like a birthday gift or a Valentine's Day gift without having a very specific discussion about the meaning. Because if your relationship is very serious and you offer your partner a ring, it might set off bells in their head that you're asking, you know, if they will marry you. And so I feel like in the relationships that I've had, at least personally over the years, rings are something that have been sort of avoided unless there was a really clear discussion in advance, not on a surprise basis about what it meant. And just like you can imagine giving someone a ring as a gift and having them think it was an engagement ring when it was not, how horrible that might feel for everybody involved, that could be the same type of thing that might happen with a caller. And so... It's just really important. If you only intend it to be for the space of a scene or for headspace or for play, it's fine. Just make sure you're discussing that because if one person has in their mind that, oh, this is a a very serious step in our relationship, it means, you know, we're having some kind of, you know, deeper commitment or permanent bond and the other person feels that it's a very casual, playful thing, you can see that that could be a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And I would also say, to watch out if things change because I could see a situation where someone receives a caller that is intended only for play. And then it starts to feel like more than that. And I think that becomes an important thing to have a conversation about because it's better to have that conversation early than for it to turn in this huge thing in one person's head that the other person has no idea is going on. Absolutely. So communication is really important. And some of the topics that I would encourage people who are negotiating around a caller to think about are things like, what does it mean for both of us? What do we agree mutually that it means? That's really important. So not sort of individual notions, but what do we agree that this specific caller, token, item, piercing, brand, whatever it means, when will it be used? When can it be removed and by who? What else? What other things am I missing? 
I mean, it's it it all depends on what you agree that it means, right? And I think that's the big place to have the discussion. But what are some it, topics to sort of start that conversation? What are some questions that people should be asking, do you think? Well, what does it represent, right? Why are we doing this? I mean, I think asking that big why question is usually really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting as clear as you can about that. And what do we want this to mean? Right? Does this mean that the submissive, when they're wearing that collar, is not allowed to brat? Or that there's a different set of consequences if they brat? You know, that's, I'm not saying it should, but I'm saying it could. Right? Does this mean that a different set of rules and protocols come into effect that you put on the formal collar and that? has with it a set of formal rules and protocols for behavior. That's a good point. So, you know, what are we doing here? What does this mean? What are the rules? What are the consequences for breaking the rules on both ends? You know, and this could go on and on, but these are just some really basic things to think about. So I know that you have a very busy day today since it is your birthday and you have plans. So I won't keep you too long, but I, I think that we've given a pretty good overview of, you know, just some food for thought when it comes to collaring, what it might mean, what it has the potential for. Do you have any closing thoughts about it? Yes. Think about what the materials are and how they're going to wear if this is a collar that's going to be used a lot and for a long time and think about whether, you know, if the thing you have in mind is mass produced, how do you feel about that? Is it something you want to uh, commission from an individual artisan or that one partner is going to make for another, you know, it could be, I mean, a collar could just be a piece of string that's tied around somebody's neck. Right. Or it could be, the most elaborate piece of jewelry or leatherwork or whatever you choose for it to be. And so think about what you want that object to be and where you want to get it. And also who it belongs to, that the people I've collared, we've been really clear that they wear my collar. And that even though they wear it, it's mine. And that symbolizes the kind of dynamic that's a part of the dynamic that we have and want to have. And again, other people make different choices, and that's fine. For Mac and I, the exchange of jewelry has been about that I am his and he is mine. Mm -hmm. And it's a very subtle sort of wording difference, I think. But um, again, it's just one of the examples of how individualists can be. So thanks for having this chat with me. I think it was a really um, important topic to cover and I'm looking forward to having you back on the show soon. You bet. We'll talk soon. Thanks as always for listening to Naughty Talk. Our show is available on most popular podcast platforms. For updates, to submit a request to be a guest on the show, to write in with questions for our hosts or request lifestyle advice, head over to the show's page at sunnyleemain.com. You'll also find information about my novels, including my Turn the Key series, which are dark erotica with themes of hypnosis, BDSM, and sometimes a little bit of magic. All books feature different kinks and are queer inclusive. I hope you've enjoyed the show and you join us again next time.